So it's been interesting in the book of Haggai as we've been in it and we're, we're nearing Christmas and there's been a lot of kind of Christmas themes obviously because we're talking about Christ and there's lots of correlations and I just, I just, it's a reminder to me that scripture speaks to all of life. It's always informing us of our circumstances and it's informing us about ourselves even. And so as we've been celebrating, as we celebrate Christmas, you know, as families and and we celebrate more, I guess, properly tomorrow, since it's being the day, Christmas Day. There is this kind of spiritual connection with the holiday that's been made, right? That this is when we celebrate the birth of Jesus, and Christians all over the world are, are doing just that. There's no scriptural mandate for us to celebrate the birth of Christ on this particular day or anything like that. You know, as we've been going through the Old Testament, you see all these different holidays, right? That, and we talked about that last week, how there's very specific days in which the people there were to celebrate certain holidays and do certain things. Well, Christmas isn't there in that way. The only holiday the New Testament talks about is the Lord's Day, which happens 52 times a year. Yet... It's not wrong to celebrate Christmas as a way to celebrate the incarnation of Christ. As we read that word and saw that idea come out in the Nicene Creed that we just read from. It's a most important event in history. That God would come down and that he would dwell among men. And that he, just as he had been promising to do, as we've been reading in the book of Haggai, that he promised to come and to be among his people. Christmas is considered a kind of Christian holy day. Of sorts, even though I hesitate to use that word. But as you look all around, even as we celebrate it, it doesn't seem all that holy or all that set apart or something different. It doesn't seem to be set apart for sacred use. Rather, it just seems like a time to indulge in the normal, to do more of the things that we normally do. And again, I'm not down on Christmas or people celebrating it. I think it's a great holiday. The more and more that we can say the name of Jesus and to hear it said and to preach it is, is a good and a good thing. But as we come to this text today, I think it brings up an important point. It's the idea that something unclean or unholy can easily tarnish something that is clean. Whereas the opposite is not true. Something that is holy cannot easily make something unclean to be holy or to be clean. As we continue to talk about the rebuilding of the temple, these themes are going to be right in the front, and it's going to call us to consider or to to set our hearts upon the words of God, as we've been called to before. And so as we move through this text, I want to break it into those two main ideas. First, making unclean, and then second, being made holy. So with that, let's go together to the text, Haggai chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 10 through 19. Please stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's holy word. Haggai 2, 10 through 19. On the 24th day of the ninth month in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priest about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold, bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priest answered and said, no. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? 
The priest answered and said, It does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, So is it with the people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. Now then consider from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of twenty measures, there were but ten. When one came to the wine vat to draw fifty measures, there were but twenty. I struck you and all the products of your toil with the blight and with mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from the twenty-fourth day of the ninth month, since the day of the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on... I will bless you. This is where the Lord may be seated. So remember last week we talked about how it was as the people of God were rebuilding the temple, they ran into some trouble. Mainly their own discouragement was the trouble that they ran into. The Lord was reminding them to be strong and to fear not because He was with them. The prophet foretold, that when the temple of God would be among the people and how this was pointing forward to Christ. And we looked at that specifically last week. He would come and He would tabernacle among His people and He would be there with them. Ultimately, He would give His life for His people. He became sin that they might become the very righteousness of God. He took on their unclean in order to make them clean, which is going to be a major theme going forward today. The context for this message is that a few months later than we looked at last week, Haggai has been very meticulous in recording the exact day that these sermons were given. And so we have a couple months in between last week's message and this one. And there is a broader context because there's another prophet there amongst the temple rebuilding efforts that is also preaching. And his name is Zechariah. And his book is just right next door to this one. So if you'll actually turn... So be turned towards the towards the right, I guess. We're going to look at Zechariah chapter one, and just one ser- just one month before this sermon of Haggai, Zechariah preached to the people as well, and his message was a little bit more difficult. So I'm going to read from Zechariah chapter one. I'm just going to read the first six verses here. And what I want you to hear is the similarities between Haggai's message and what's going on here is the call to the people. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Iddo, saying, The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, Thus declares the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets cried out. Thus says the Lord of hosts, return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they repented and said, As the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us in our ways and our deeds, so has he dealt with us. 
Zechariah is speaking for the Lord here, obviously, as his prophet, explaining to them that the Lord was angry with their fathers. And the reason, and what ended up happening because of the Lord's anger? Well, they ended up in exile. But there was a correct path for the people going forward, and that was to follow his law. Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you. I think this message from Zechariah helps us to put Haggai's message for us today in perspective. Because the Haggai's message seems to kind of come out of left field. What is he doing talking about clean and unclean and all this different stuff? The people are being called to holy living because they have a holy task. The rebuilding of the temple. And it's something that they should see as vitally important to restoring their relationship with God. And that brings us to the first point, making unclean. So I'm going to read verses 10 through 14 again of Haggai chapter 2. Let's look at that. On the 24th day of the ninth month, the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask a priest about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil, any kind of food, does it become holy? The priest answered and said, no. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priest answered and said, it does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, so it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands and what they offer there is unclean. I want to focus on the second part of the second question that he asked the priest first because I think it's easiest for us to kind of grasp and understand. We understand this completely. We understand that someone with dirty hands who is unclean can touch something that is clean and it makes that thing dirty, right? We, we totally 100% get this. We get this in various applications. There was this recent, uh, if you watch the news or familiar with this thing that just happened, there was this recent outbreak of salmonella. It's almost every year there's some sort of salmonella outbreak with some odd product. And this time it was sliced cantaloupe. Very specific, right? That salmonella is found in sliced cantaloupe. And some of my students and I were talking about this actually. And their question was, well, I thought salmonella came from birds. How does that get to cantaloupes? And without going into the detail of our conversation, I'll spare you. I just said it takes just a few birds to spoil a whole lot of cantaloupe. Once you realize where those cantaloupes might have come from and what they might have been exposed to, you realize quickly, I don't want to eat that. I don't want to eat that. Even though the, the chance that you're going to be contaminated with salmonella is, is, is minuscule. Think of the number of people that ate cantaloupe versus the number of people that were actually infected with it. It is, it is minuscule. But you don't want to take that chance that you're going to eat something that is unclean. The same goes for the instruction here. We've been studying the history of God's people for a while now. And as we've read through it, we've seen this concept of unclean over and over again. We read about how the priests offered sacrifices, and that was their job. But then we read about these priests back in 1 Samuel who were awful priests. 
in their treatment of others and how they use the sacrifices to their own benefit. We've read about kings who love the Lord. And we've also read about their serial adultery. We've read about people promising to keep the terms of the covenant with God, right? Actually saying, we will do this. We're going to keep these terms with you. And then you read about them worshiping the idols of their enemies. These people that they're praying that the Lord would deliver them from, they're turning and worshiping their gods. It just doesn't make any sense. What looks to be a holy people set apart for the work of God is actually a people that looks just like any other people in the world. No different. Just like sliced cantaloupe that some bird defiled. No longer clean. And that is the point that Haggai is trying to make here. And he makes that point specifically in verse 14. Then Haggai answered and said, So it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands and what they offer there is unclean. The task that has been set before them is a monumental task. They were to build the temple to proper specifications according to the worship of the Lord, according to God's word, and so God's people could offer temple sacrifices so that all of these things could be made new again and reinstituted among the people of God. Yet they were planning to set up their building with unclean hands. They were just going to do, they were just going to build God's temple, but in so doing, they were going to make it unclean. Just like the person handling the dead body before handling holy things, as Haggai brings out, it makes those holy things unclean or unusable. This is a hard teaching. There's no way around it. It's not hard to make direct connection to our lives today and how easily we defile the worship of God with our sin. We do so with obvious things. There's very obvious ways that we do this, right? Those things that everyone can see, that everyone knows to be defilement. But more often than not, we do this with our hearts. Jeremiah the prophet tells us that our hearts are deceitful above all things. Who can understand it? Our heart is is so deceitful and so crooked that it doesn't even make sense. The things that it thinks, the things that it desires, the things that it wants don't make any sense when compared to God's Word. It's so defiled that it creeps into our worship. And for pagans, or for the unbeliever, this isn't a far stretch, right? We get how the unbeliever or how how the pagan would, would have these corrupted or defiled ways of worship. But those who've been made holy, those who have been made holy and are being made holy, This is a hard thing to understand. You can see the consequences for the people in their rebuilding efforts. This idea of them building something that with with unholy or unclean hands. You see that in verses 15 and following. Now then consider from this day onward before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of 20 measures, there were but 10. When one came to the wine vat to draw fifty measures, there were but twenty. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. 
Whatever they did, the Lord thwarted their efforts. He wasn't going to have his holy temple rebuilt with dirty hands. What about for us? I want to be careful here, particularly as we move into the next point, because if it's not our adherence to the law, it's not our attitude toward God or worship of Him that saves us at all. The Lord Jesus alone saves us, and we know that to be true. Yet, so often it is our law-keeping and our attitude in worship that dictates how we perceive God, how we react to His will within our lives. We know how these people have reacted. They've struggled to do this task that the Lord has set before them. Why? Because their hands are dirty. They are setting themselves to this holy task with unclean hands. The psalm that we read this morning, Psalm 24, deals with this directly. And so I want to read from that. You can look at your bulletin or you can turn with me there to Psalm 24 in your copies of God's Word. I'm going to be looking at verses 1 through 6 specifically. And and consider this question that we have before us in Haggai. This idea of, of building something holy with unclean hands. Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and and those who dwell therein, for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? Who has clean hands? Or he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false or does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness righteousness from the God of salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. We need these clean hands in order to do this holy task, in order to ascend the hill of the holy God. But who has them? The psalmist asks this question. He, I mean, who, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? In Christ, of course, we have been made righteous. But daily holiness, the day-to-day living out the law of God and doing the things that He requires of us is still a struggle and will continue to be a struggle this side of heaven. This is a call to holiness for us today as a church. This is a call for us to consider the Word of God, to set our hearts upon it. We have to be careful in doing that because it's easy to go the other way in any good work that we do, and we're going to talk about that shortly. We can easily become convinced that our good works save us. But I still want to call you to self-reflection, particularly as we near a new year. It's always a good time to think about things, to consider the things that we are allowing to defile us. Think of Haggai's day and the things that they had then. And our day is it's so much different. They couldn't even imagine. Just like we couldn't imagine how they live, they can't imagine how we live either. I think about the Internet and how it's designed to give you more of what you want. Specifically designed to give you more of what you want. You cannot access the Internet without using something that knows you. You cannot do it. It's impossible. It's designed to give you more of what you want. And it's going to continue to feed you those things. We can easily defile ourselves to the point that we are damaged goods. 
It affects our relationships, our worship of God, our vocation, all that we do. While the problem exists the same in Haggai's day, we have access, or the access that we have today is much, much different. And and that defilement takes many different forms, whether it's the standards of beauty, financial standards, opportunities for gossip or slander. I could just keep going on and on and on, and you know that. Really, anything your heart desires, and even in Christ, we cannot trust our hearts. We must fill ourselves with holy things, clean things, and be changed by these things. And that brings us to the second point, being made holy. Look with me at Haggai chapter 2, verse 12. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priest answered and said, no. This verse presents us with kind of the opposite dilemma that we had been dealing with in the previous point. We have a picture of a priest that he has his holy garments on that have been consecrated for a holy use by the priest to do his specific work. And these garments were specifically instructed by God with a certain kind of blessing associated with them. They're not just like church clothes, right? Very specific kinds of thing. They're very special for holy use. Yet even when these holy garments that had some kind of holy meat in them brushed against some bread or some stew, I thought that was really strangely specific, but I guess in those days it might have just been more plain to them. It didn't make those things holy. These holy garments that are written about in God's Word that are very specific and have been blessed in a certain way, when they touch something else that's not been made holy that way, those garments have no power to make those things holy. They didn't make holy bread just by rubbing against it. That would seem really strange to us, right? The priests quickly answer, no, that's not what happens. This kind of thing is commonplace, though, in many circles today. There are these kinds of holy relics, holy icons that are used. They're only to be used for sacred use. I recently spoke with someone who is Russian Orthodox and got me thinking about these things again. And the Orthodox Church depends heavily on icons, these pictures for worship of God or like some sort of painting or relief sculpture that depicts Jesus or some scene from the Bible or, or Mary or something any kind of thing that they determine to be an icon, and they use these pictures or they use these sculptures in order to focus their worship, is what they would say. Not worshiping the painting, but their word is but their word is venerating that painting, which I realize is a thin line, but I just want to be fair to them. But in the end, what are they doing? They're attempting to take something that is basically mundane. Even though they're beautiful and wonderful works of art, these beautiful things are still mundane. They're attempting to take these paintings to make their worship holy, to set it apart for holy use. Or they're attempting to make themselves holy by the use of these paintings. You you can't do that. It doesn't work. It makes sense to us. We understand that it doesn't work. The priests have told us here that it doesn't work. I used Orthodox as an example just to kind of butter us up a little bit, so to speak, 
because it might be easy for us to consider this kind of thing and to think, well, I obviously don't do anything like that. And so that's not something that I'm struggling with. I'll leave this kind of sin to the people who don't understand things the way that I do. Of course, we would never say that out loud, but that's how we think. But this is a sin that plagues the church just as much as desecrating the holy things does. Even though the priest knew the answer posed in verse 12, the people of God didn't act like they knew the answer to verse or in verse 12. They knew that on paper the holy things couldn't easily make the unclean things clean, but that's not how they lived. In their history, they worshipped the Baals and the Asheroths. They offered sacrifices to pagan gods alongside the sacrifices that they offered to the one true God, and yet they continue to speak about these sacrifices and their temple practices as these are the things that God wants, these are the things that God likes, and as long as we keep doing these things, He'll excuse these other things that we're also doing. But they knew better. They knew that God looked at the heart rather than their sacrifices. They had these things available to them. They had Psalm 51 that David wrote available to them that says in verses 16 and 17, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be, you will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. We know these verses from David as well, yet we are convinced that with us, it's somehow different. What God really wants is my piety. He really wants my ability to appear pious. That's what He really wants. As long as I can appear this way, then the things that I'm doing are going to kind of be excused. Even though the sacrifices of the Jewish people didn't make them any more holy, my adherence to Christian practices and Christian traditions are surely going to help me much more than they were helped by slaughtering sheep and goats. On one hand, we believe that we are so holy that the sinful things of the world can't possibly have an effect on us, that we can't possibly be defiled like other people, so we indulge. We skate the lines. We think these things bother others. But I'm different. And they won't bother me. Then in order to cover it up, we keep holy practices in an effort to please God or satisfy Him somehow by the things that we're doing. We never say it aloud, but we always secretly hope that things like our church attendance and our tithes and our good deeds and our charity, that all these things will combine to overcome the uncleanness that is actually in our hearts. That if we can just do enough, if our robes are just a little bit more holy than the next guy, that we can make any rottenness in our hearts and our minds holy just by kind of brushing against them. Just as the building a temple with dirty hands is no way to build a temple, attempting to clean the dirt from inside of us by painting ourselves white is no way to deal with our sin either. We need a Savior who can wash us clean from all impurity. We need a Savior whose good works are actually capable of purchasing our pardon and whose good works actually stand up 
to a holy God. We have that Savior in Jesus who became man and dwelt among us. The holy thing became mundane in order to make the unclean thing us holy again. Back in Psalm 24, I want to read the second part of this psalm to kind of close us up. Psalm 24, verses 7 through 10. Remember this question that we have before us in Psalm, the first, in Psalm 24, the first six verses. Verse 7 says, Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your gates, or lift up your head, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. I left that question unanswered earlier. Who can ascend the holy hill? He who has clean hands. Who has clean hands? We don't. It's the King of glory. The Lord Jesus alone. The Lord of hosts. He is the one. He alone has clean hands. And He alone is able to make us clean. And He's done it with the cost of His life. And this is why we have to be careful not to take things in that would defile us. Not to take the mundane things of the world in that would defile us. It's also why we should rest from our labors in trying to save ourselves. Because we can't possibly add to Jesus or make Him more clean or more holy than He is. He is God Almighty. We can't add to Him somehow. God, if you'll just add this, then then I'll be good. We can't do that. He cannot be defiled. This is the struggle of the Christian life. We, we struggle, we will struggle with this until we are with Him in glory. And it's why we need this reminder. And I think the prophet gives us this perfect reminder in verse 19 of chapter 2. Out of this righteous rebuke that we have been given by Him, we see the mercy of the Lord. Look with me at verse 19. Is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. From this day on, I will bless you. Find something in the last chapter that can, that, that we deserve, verse 19. Find a thing that the people of the Lord have done that, that says that the Lord could come to us at all and say from this day on, I will bless you. There's nothing there. There's no reason that he ought to do that. He had been withholding his blessing from the people because of their sin, but now he will bless them. That blessing will come with his presence. As they rebuild the temple, as they reinstitute worship, they will commune with their God again, just as they have been instructed to do. But they look forward to a time, and we look back to that time We don't have to do that any longer because God has become man and he has dwelt among us and he is Jesus Christ our Lord. If you're an unbeliever here this morning, the Bible says that without God you are unholy and that there's no hope of saving yourself. Just to be clear, that's the truth of the Scriptures. Even though you might do good things, the Bible reminds us that no one does good. Romans chapter 3 
not one. No one seeks after God. Together they have become worthless. This is what the Bible says about us outside of Christ. You cannot stack up enough holy things to overcome your sin. You need a Savior, and that Savior is Jesus Christ. Call upon his name today. The only name under heaven by which we can be saved, call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. For the believer, we have been made holy by Jesus. We have been made holy, and we are being made holy. This process is called sanctification. We talk about it quite a bit. Something that we take part in. We learn that from the book of Philippians, right? That we work out our salvation, not adding to Christ, but working out this idea that we are being made holy in Him. And so the call for us is the same call for the people in Haggai's day. Consider God's Word, that you would be careful to guard against what goes in, that we would not defile ourselves. Rather, we would be able to bring glory to God in all that we do. Let us consider the good works that we do as well, not as something to earn favor with God or to grant us more holiness than the next guy, rather that we do good works because we now have been changed on the inside. And this is what's coming from us on the outside, particularly this time of year when as people have the birth of Jesus on their minds, let us show them what it means that Jesus came and dwelt among us, yet remained undefiled. Let us seek to glorify God and let us do so as we love the lost world around us. Let's go to him in prayer.